1: On this week's Science Revolution, how Trump's new herd mentality strategy could kill six million Americans and destroy our economy. Trump doesn't know how to run a business, so we shouldn't be surprised that he doesn't know how to run a country. His latest failure, tragically, is the United States of America. Economist Richard Wolff and Dr. Justin Frank drop by on all this. Plus, Dr. Gary Yo is here on the apocalyptic wildfires and climate warming. Stay tuned. If you caught Donald Trump's town hall with George Stephanopoulos on ABC News, George was basically, you know, he said, well, what are you going to do about the virus? And Trump said, well, it's just going to go away. And George was like, well, how does that happen? And Trump was like, well, you know, when enough people get infected, you no longer have the disease spreading. It's called herd. And he started to say immunity and then realized you can't use that phrase. That phrase is like you know, it's just a word you don't say in polite company anymore. What was it, Hitchcock, whatever his name is, health minister of the UK had used that phrase for a while, and Boris Johnson had used that phrase for a while, and they just got trashed for it. And by the way, because they basically pissed away months of time trying their herd immunity strategy and killing thousands of people in the process, now the UK is going back into lockdown because they didn't do it right and they never did the extensive testing and contact tracing. The problem is that once you have an infection level above a certain threshold, and that's gonna vary depending on geography and population density and the size of the country and how porous the borders are. and You know, there's a whole bunch of variables here. But basically, once your infection level goes above a certain point, contact tracing and testing become damn near impossible. I mean, you can still test, but Contact trace? Oh, okay, you just tested positive. Who have you seen in the last two weeks? And you discover that, hey, 20% of the people that they've come into contact with are infected. So you don't know where it came from. So the strategy that the UK employed and the strategy that the Trump administration is employing right now are going to make it really, really difficult for the next prime minister of the United Kingdom or even Boris Johnson, if he sticks around, or the next president of the United States or even Trump, if he wins another term or steals another term. I mean, let's be honest about this. But in particular, if Joe Biden is president, it's going to make it very difficult for them to test and contact trace their way out of this because so many people will be carrying the virus. And this is, I believe, an intentional strategy on the part of the Trump administration. You will recall back in April and May and June. Those of you who are longtime viewers or listeners to this program will remember very clearly my saying over and over and over again. It is obvious to me that these guys are pursuing a herd immunity strategy. Everything shifted on April 7th, as I've pointed out many times, on april 7th that was the day that suddenly we all discovered that more black people and brown people were dying from this than white people and in fact it's in the neighborhood of 80 percent of all the deaths now are minorities or people who have serious other conditions and only about 20 percent are white people who are not elderly who are dying and at that point The Trump administration, and there have been a couple of good stories about this, they were one-day scandals that then kind of dropped into the memory hole, that then the Trump administration said, well, hey, if it's killing black people, and it's killing people in blue states, and that was the argument apparently that Jared Kushner made, it's killing people in the blue states, why are we bothering to come up with a national program? And so they abandoned it in the middle of April, and said, let's go for herd immunity. It's going to kill off a lot of brown and black people and, you know, the elderly. Hey, that'll save us money on Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. And so let's just do this. Back some time before that, Trump had said something quite different. This was from five months ago. He said, and I quote, if we did follow that approach, he's talking about herd immunity. I think we'd have two million people dead. The UK tried it, the H.E.R.D. approach, okay, H.E.R.D., and they tried it, and you saw what happened in the UK. It set them back a lot of time. It's been, you know, you're having a tough time. Other countries have tried it. Sweden is suffering greatly. I mean, Sweden is suffering greatly. Well, now he's got Scott Atlas in there, Fox News radiologist, who does a great job of doing television, but apparently as a physician and certainly as an epidemiologist in which he has absolutely no training, he's an idiot. And he's been promoting this idea of herd immunity. Well, even if we did herd immunity in the United States, which would mean probably at least two million deaths, and yes, most of those people who die would be older people, but even if we did that, you would have tens of millions of people, and nobody's talking about this. I mean, I keep bringing up these scientific studies. You'd have tens of millions of people with permanent heart damage, strokes, dementia, chronic fatigue, and all the other long-term health conditions that we don't know how long they're going to last, but we know that people who got the infections back in February and March and April still have right? They still have heart disease. They still have heart inflammation. They still have organ damage in their spleen and liver and kidneys. They still have damage to their eyes. They still have strokes in their brain. Some of them are still, you know, having to write post-it notes to remember things because their short-term memory is just shot, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then Atlas is saying, well, masks are not effective. Well, you know, Redfield, the head of the CDC said, you know, a mask is actually more effective than a vaccine. And he's absolutely right. If everybody's wearing masks, you know, basically you don't need the vaccine. That's how Taiwan reached the point where they have not had a case of community transmission in Taiwan since April 12th. We got our first case on January 20th. They got their first case on January 21st. And they have not had a case since April 12th. And they haven't had a death in months in Taiwan because they did testing and contact tracing. But Trump? No. No. It's insane. So now that we learn that Department of Health and Human Services and the CDC are no longer recommending to states, as their coronavirus infection rates spiral into the red zone, that they suggest that people wear masks or require that people wear masks. Now that the, the White House has backed away from that, and that Donald Trump and Scott Atlas, the uh, Fox News radiologist, who is apparently a senior coronavirus advisor, are openly suggesting that what we need is herd mentality, aka herd immunity. Let everybody in America or 70% of America get sick with this disease, kill off 6 million Americans, permanently disable 20, 30, 40 million Americans with everything from strokes to heart disease to dementia. What will that look like in our economy. How does an economy work? in a situation like that. On the line with us, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, the co-founder of Democracy at Work, the author of numerous books, including his most recent one, which speaks right to this issue. It's titled, The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can find the information at democracyatwork.info, and also rdwolffwith2fs.com. Twitter handle is ProfWolf, as in Professor Wolf. Professor Wolf, welcome back. You heard my setup. Your thoughts?
2: Well, it is grim, but there is no way to pretend otherwise. Here's what this kind of proposal from the president, and I'll be polite, I'll call them his advisors, here's what it means. You put this many people out of commission, either by killing them or by making them sick and unable to work, What you're doing is you're crippling the economy. You know, the way an economy works is the mass of people do work, and they produce output. A portion of the output the mass of people produce is given back to them for their consumption, their food, their clothing, their shelter, and all of that. The rest of it, which economists used to call surplus, what's produced by the working people over and above what they get back as wages, that's what is available for everything else, for all the people that aren't working, whether they be children or the elderly, for all the people whose work really isn't the production of goods and services but other types of things. The system depends on that surplus, how rich you are, what kind of culture and politics you can support. If you undercut the foundation of the working class, which is what he is proposing to allow to happen, you are at the very least going to severely crunch the standard of living, the ability of this system to reproduce itself, or and this is a certain possibility now you're literally going to bring the system down let me try to get it across with a metaphor in the 14th century european feudalism the system of lords and serfs on feudal manners suffered a pandemic virus it was called the bubonic plague it was called the black death was carried by fleas, who were in turn carried by rats, and it killed hundreds of millions of people. It meant that millions and millions of serfs were no longer farming the land, because they were dead or sick. And because of that, they not only didn't produce the goods that could have sustained them, but they didn't produce the surplus that went to the lords and that kept the whole of feudalism going. Feudalism's decline begins then. It is followed quickly by the Renaissance, which is a breaking away of Southern Europe, particularly Italy, then the Reformation, which splits European feudalism in the two religions, and it 's downhill from there until the French and American revolutions toll the end of feudalism. What we are watching now, particularly with this management by Mr. Trump and his cronies to get reelected, is the Breaking down of this system as you cripple the mass of people whose labor is what keeps it going.
1: Yeah, it is truly breathtaking. I, I don't even know where to go from that. <laughs> what would it look like in the United I suppose you'd have a realignment of our business structure. You'll have fewer TGI Fridays and holiday inns and more drive-in funeral parlors. In a more micro sense, what would the economy look like if this disease just ran rampant and people were constantly getting sick. And there was a study out of the UK where they looked at recovered COVID patients, people who had not been so severely sick that they required intubation. Some of them had been hospitalized to give them oxygen, most of them were not. So they had mild to moderate cases. They looked at them months after they had recovered and they found that 80% of them had lasting damage to their hearts and about 30% of them still had heart infections, still had active myocardial, whatever it's called, you know, an infection of the heart muscle. What does that look like?
2: Here's some of the micro level consequences. A battle royal developed in feudalism because the serfs couldn't deliver surplus to the lords. Well, then the lords, in turn, couldn't pay back the moneylenders from whom they had borrowed the money that enabled them to grow their landed estates and bring more serfs on and on and on. Flash forward right now. The landlords and the tenants in America, residential tenants, they're gearing up for a major catastrophe come the end of this year, given what Trump has done. Evictions will start. Tenants will be dragged into court by the landlords. The banks are going to drag into court the landlords because they're not paying back. The same is happening with commercial renters. We have no idea how these struggles provoked in the first place, by people unable to pay their rent because they cannot deal with their illnesses and their infirmities at the same time that they struggle with their jobs. The Europeans, by the way, explained that they did not throw tens of millions of people out of work the way we did in the United States, in part to prevent All of this kind of sequential dislocation from unfolding. The lunacy here was to give 55 million people their walking papers, put them on unemployment, uncertain life ahead of them, making them hunker down, not make payments, whether it be for rent or mortgage. So you're seeing already, as it plays out, the failure of people to be able to produce means they don't have the incomes they had before, which means they can't make the payments they were obligated to make, which ramifies the crisis all over the place. And that's how you go from the failure to prepare for and manage a disease into wholesale economic decline.
1: Trump is essentially asserting that this will get the economy back on track if he just does his little herd immunity thing and the virus just magically goes away. What say you?
2: The nonsense is unspeakable. He said there was no crisis with the disease when it first came. We now know from the book that he knew very well how devastating it was. He needs to say that the economy is okay, because his election depends on that. Hoping... Against hope that he can slither through in early November, and then, as the French king said about himself before the French Revolution, moi le déluge, which means in English, after me the collapse comes. That's Mr. Trump.
1: Professor Wolf, thanks so much for dropping by. On the line with us is Dr. Justin Frank, MD, psychoanalyst and clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University, author of a series of on-the-couch books, including Obama, Bush, and most recently, Trump on the couch. We saw Donald Trump in Nevada with a huge crowd of people indoors. And when he was asked about his personal concern for getting COVID from being with all these people... He said, oh, I was far away from them. Like, they don't matter. They can die, but I'm not going to die. I'm wondering if he actually has some kind of a death wish. He's so behind in the polls. He knows that if he loses, he's almost certainly going to go to jail. What's going on inside this guy's head? Why is he willing to take these kind of chances? And why is he willing to set his own followers up, like he did Herman Cain, to die? Well, that's a
0: very big question that requires a lot of kind of dismantling in a way to figure out whether what's we're talking about, whether it's something is conscious or something that's unconscious, and is it something that's a wish or a drive to destroy or a wish to die? I do think that Trump has always been a destroyer and that he is attached to the power of being destructive, and that his narcissistic grandiosity or his sense of self worth has been this sense of power that he can destroy, that he can shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and everybody will vote for him even more. So we're talking about a grandiose person. So at one level, the problem with being a grandiose person is that they don't recognize how much need they have. So he doesn't feel he needs anybody. But what he's become aware of is that he really can't exist in his mind as a well-functioning person without his base. So he now has a base upon whom he depends. He used to think he ruled them. But in some ways, unconsciously, I think they rule him. And they're like Hmm. the people he depends on. And he hates being dependent on anybody. So I think your idea about a death wish towards his base is probably accurate. He wishes to destroy them because he can't stand how much he needs them. So he wow. makes an attack on them in order to deny the depth of his need. So we've gone from a person who is in a, wants to be in a sense of feeling power to a person who is realizing that he needs other people in order to sustain his sense of power. He can't do it himself. And that's a new experience for him. And he started having it much more intensively with the Lincoln Project, but he was also having it with the article in Atlantic when they said how he has contempt for military leaders and he calls them stupid or suckered, all these negative Rogers, yeah. epithets. And I think that what that led to was not so much that he said those things, but that it became public and that his mm-hmm. contempt was there for all to see. We all saw it, except maybe the people who watch Fox News who didn't get the news about that. But his contempt is there. And the problem when you're a narcissistic person like him, he can have what's called a narcissistic regression. He can regress into a very dangerous place and that he is essentially finding himself humiliated. That he has a narcissistic humiliation from that article in The Atlantic, then making public by Woodward that he lied about the virus, and that he is essentially being mocked and laughed at by a lot more and more people, and he can't escape it anymore. Plus, he can't escape how much he needs his bank. So he's in trouble.
1: Did I ever tell you, did we uh, have this discussion before about my friend Armin Lehman, who was the 15-year-old child soldier who delivered, personally delivered the news to Hitler that the war was lost in the Fuhrer Bunker? No. I worked with this guy for years back in the 1980s. We traveled all around the world together. He wrote a book called In Hitler's Bunker. I helped him get it published. I mean, it was, it's just an amazing book. In Berlin, as the war, at the very last days of the war, he took that news to Adolf Hitler. He was there when Hitler read the news. He was there when Hitler and Eva Braun committed suicide. He was there when Goebbels and his wife killed their children and committed suicide. And Armin and I had many conversations about that, several of them on this program before Armin died about a decade ago. His point was that Hitler's mindset more or less, was if I can't have everything, if I can't rule the world, if people don't love me the way that they're supposed to, and the Germans have failed in loving me because they lost this damn war, then to hell with all of them. I want to burn the whole world down, and then I'm going to go with it. That was essentially Armand's understanding of Hitler's worldview, and he literally was there and watched it happen. By the way, the book is no longer in print, but you can find copies on Amazon real easily if you're curious. Is that the same kind of thing that we're watching right now with Trump?
0: Yes, Armand understood exactly what we're talking about, which is the narcissistic regression of a grandiose person who lives in an either-or world. Either you're all-powerful or you're humiliated and completely defeated. There's nothing in between. And Trump grew up in a world of winners and losers, but losers were the worst. They were humiliated. They were put down. His brother was a loser. Both of his brothers were, in a way, but his older brother was. And his father said, you have to be a killer, and his father was a tyrant. So that is about the pressure to be all-powerful and the narcissistic drive which is compensatory, by the way, for having been injured as a child and felt bad. So you actually overcompensate by becoming more and more grandiose in your fantasy. You want to be not just the master of the universe, you want to be the master of your inner world. So you don't feel anxious. You don't feel envy. You don't feel dependency. You don't feel needing other people. You are triumphant. And then you unconsciously, and what Armin was saying was talking about if he wasn't loved enough by the German people of Hitler. I mean, it really is about being loved by his base. So in a way, he's asking them to prove their love by risking their lives. Prove your love of me by coming indoors. I need your absolute love. But I hate the fact that I need it because I hate being dependent on you. So he's in this terrible new situation. I don't think he ever realized how dependent he was on his base until now.
1: What can we do about this? How should Americans react to this? How Politically, personally, what do we do with this knowledge? Well,
0: the best thing, first of all, for Americans to do, it's very hard to know because I'm more worried about what the people around him in government are going to do. They need to find, to develop situations to protect various institutions from his destructiveness, and the problem is nobody has the guts to stand up to him. What we need to do is have perspective that what he's talking about is so much involved with himself and not about us. It's not realistic about us. He is dismissive and full of contempt and divisive, but I think it's important for people to keep their heads up and pay attention to what's going on. And talk about climate change. Do Black Lives Matter? Get out the vote. Be proactive, because this man—I mean—he's the kind of person who would be wearing a tin hat on a street corner, except he's the president. Pretty scary. Right. Yeah. So 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 our heads above water and look forward. Vote, demonstrate, put pressure on people. These senators are pathetic. I have to say.
1: Yeah, I agree. And my personal experience but has been that action is the best therapy. Action uh, good is on you by here. far the best therapy. Dr. Justin Frank, M.D., a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral science at George Washington University. His most recent book, "Trump on the Couch." You can tweet him at Justin Frank, M.D. Just like spelled, just like it sounds. Dr. Frank, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. We'll be right back. You're listening
3: to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives.
1: It's 45 minutes past the hour. Stick around. We'll be right back. Sponsoring the interview this week is... Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It
2: doesn't
3: get any better than this.
1: Welcome back, Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us, an extraordinary man, senior member of the UN IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the Huffington Foundation Professor of Economics and Environmental Studies at Wesleyan University, the 2007 recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, Dr. Gary Yeo. ClimatePower2020.org is his website. Dr. Yeo, welcome to the program. I'd like to get your take on what's going on with these wildfires. I'm, I'm in Portland, Oregon. I'm looking out the window right now and I can't see more than a quarter mile. It's just, it's nuts what's going on out here.
3: It truly is. What is going on out on the west coast in Oregon and Washington state and in California with the fires is really quite extraordinary. You all have lived with fire seasons for most of your lifetimes, I think. There are a lot of reasons for forest fires and we can talk about that. But the real question is, why is this year so spectacularly different? and spectacular is is hyperbole, just meaning it stands out. It's, It's really an anomaly, and I think a lot of it can be blamed on climate change, and a particular growing manifestation of climate change that began a couple of years ago, but has really started to manifest itself. And that is to say, as the planet warms, it generates a lot of different sorts of impacts that generate a lot of sources of risk. One of them is heat, and therefore heat waves. Okay, that's fine. Out of heat waves come droughts. We know quite a bit about that. Out of that comes dying of forests because of bark beetles that don't die over the winter because the winters don't get cold enough. And that happens. Unusual cyclones off the west coast of Mexico creating weather conditions that promote over northern California enormous storms of dry lightning where instead of tens or twenties of these strikes in a particular location in a storm, you get thousand or two thousand of them each one of which can start a fire so my point is and it goes up the coast as well that all of these things that i just described are on the extremes of the distribution of the impacts of climate change unfortunately it's a perfect storm they're all happening at the same time so that the fires are just absolutely extraordinary there are four out of the biggest five fires in the history of california burning right now Washington state's fires. Oregon, I've heard on the TV people said we never could have imagined a fire episode where half a million people would be either asked to evacuate or on an evacuation watch. And that's what's different. And I think the climate is, to a large measure, the change in it, uh, the rationale and the reason behind it.
1: We know that there have been minor climate incidents, for example, large parts of the uh, Central Plains area of the United States apparently around six, 700 years ago went through a minor climate event that drove some native tribes together and there's a whole history around that. And then in some ways the ecosystem's changed. But I'm wondering, are we looking at the beginning of a trend toward a basically a different kind of environment that the trees that are burning right now Are not adapted to this new environment where the i mean the venters here in oregon are saying that the grapes are are ripening two weeks early basically the season's (laughs) become four weeks longer this summer so these trees clearly aren't dealing with it well they're getting wiped out are we going to have a different kind of landscape are we going to become like the high desert of of northern Arizona, for example, or is this some sort of a normal transition, and I use that word normal (laughs) advisedly, you know, in in like the 50,000 year scope of climate change, you know, we've been through a lot of different climate changes over (laughs) the years. Are we eventually going to reach a new normal and is it going to involve decades of this kind of destruction of the existing flora?
3: Short answer is yes the planet has seen a large number of climate changes and it has driven changes in animal habitat and vegetation, sea ice, all sorts of things. The thing that has made this different since the Industrial Revolution, and particularly since 1950, is the pace of the change. Um, Natural causes hardly ever cause these sorts of dramatic and multiple vectors of these sorts of dramatic changes occurring in widespread areas across the globe. That trend has accelerated over the last five or ten or fifteen years, so that example this july there are twenty five different locations around the world including you uh, you guys and in, in colorado but siberia and northern part of russia that set records all-time records on temperature and that means that the changes that you describe are happening faster than they happened six hundred years ago or six thousand years ago um, a good deal of them can be attributed to human activity and the burning of fossil fuels on the planet. And in terms of a new normal, I, I don't think this is the normal transition anymore. I don't know anyone who would be brave enough to venture a description of what the long run equilibrium, let's just call it that, of after we run out of fossil fuels and, and concentrations of greenhouse gases stabilize and temperatures stabilize. I right. don't know anybody who can answer that
1: question. Is this a linear process? It, it seems like it's almost a log process that things are not following a straight line they're not getting you know five percent worse each year they're going five percent worse than twenty percent worse than sixty percent you know something how rapidly is this happening and what should we be expecting as we go into the next decade with regard to these forest fires and floods and droughts elsewhere in the country
3: right that's a great question in louisiana and mississippi and florida panhandle are getting an unusual hurricane that's just decided to get lost and not move very fast so it's dropping of water in uh, over the course of two or three hours and it's going to continue for a while. But but you're exactly right, it's not linear. I don't think it ever was linear, but even an exponential curve with a small exponent can look like it's almost linear. Exponential is one explanation, but it's really not. There's something buried in the statistics that's called regressing towards the tail rather than regressing towards the mean. And extreme weather events have adopted that sort of behavior, and it's easiest to describe it as it seems like every time you think the worst thing has ever happened, that this year, 2020, is the worst fire that Oregon has ever seen, you can't guarantee that that's true the worst fire may yet be coming and it's mm-hmm. now more likely than it used to be that is in fact is coming until you of course run out of so until you run out of trees burn themselves out because you run out of fuel
1: right and once they burn all the trees and all the houses it's that's amazing right. dr, it's dr. gary out. yo yeah, amen. Winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, Huntington Foundation Professor of Economics and Environmental Studies at Wesleyan, senior member of the IPCC, Dr. Yo. It's an honor to speak with you. Thank you.
3: Uh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Tom Hartman Program.
1: Thank you. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.